Welcome to Snooze with Sam. Scottish sleep stories, ambience, and guided meditations. Now this week I really wanted to share with you some of my fondest memories growing up on the Isle of Skye. I know at least a few of you had shown your interest in that last time we did a wee poll. So these wee mini stories or memories aren't just one person's account of their life. I've picked these because I believe they encompass what it's like to live and breathe island life, especially when younger, although not limited to that. Lots of what would be appreciated then, and that I did appreciate then, could certainly be appreciated now, regardless of age or stage of life. Now hindsight is a beautiful thing when it comes to appreciating what one had in years gone by, of course, as sometimes we don't realise it until we are older. But for the most part, I personally did have an awareness that spending my youth on this wee island was some form of privilege. Even if occasionally it just felt like a remote, isolated, rain-soaked, midge-riddled rock with um, (laughs) not a lot of life to be had out with it. Um, It felt like it existed in a world of its own. But that again was just part of growing up somewhere very rural. Your world is naturally quite small. Anyway, over the years, the true magic of calling Sky home became clearer and clearer. So here's a few of the reasons why. So as always, lie back, take a nice deep breath, and enjoy these wee stories about a boy from Sky. Now I suppose when reciting memories, (laughs) the natural place to start is near the beginning. So when I think of the earliest memories I have of Skye, I probably would have been maybe two or three years old. We moved up to Skye because my father got a job at the Clan Donald Centre, which I'll talk much more about later, because it's its whole chapter. (laughs) 
But we moved up to Skye and into our first home near a village called Eilornsey. And very near a hotel called Ellen Armin. Some of you may have been to that. It's a truly stunning little hotel. We do great lunch and the scenery setting is to die for. It's got its own pier right down on the water's edge looking across little islands over the sea and onto the mainland. It's a truly stunning spot. But the first home we had was a humble little two-up and two-down cottage at the top of a hill just off a little single-track road. Now the hill sticks in my mind because you know when you are young your, a lot of your world does revolve around what or where can I ride my bicycle or scooter or tricycle or skateboard down the fastest and this was one of those very good hills perilous and dangerous in the wrong hands but <laughs> with practice it was a pretty much a race course, a drag strip a runway all of its own. So I was a great fan of the driveway up to the house. I remember moving in, as well as moving out, because we were only there for perhaps a couple of years. But this was our first family home. Very basic. I believe we rented it, just as a stopgap. Very much a family moving to Skye to begin their children's lives effectively from a young age and raise them as children of the earth, as it were. I also remember, just as I mentioned, the Clan Donald Centre, which has been renamed Armadale Castle a couple of times, but I think it's back these days to the Clan Donald Centre. Like I said, my dad got a gardening job there, groundskeeping, because that was his trade at that point. And I, I, th I think I remember that initially at least he commuted about three or four miles along single track roads to this place on a little Honda C50, 50cc scooter or motorcycle, whatever you want to call it. That was his first mode of transport, at least for um, doing the, the work commute. Thankfully, I didn't or don't remember a rather nasty and serious accident he had on said motorbike, which left him rather battered and unconscious on the road at one point. And I think he has scars to show for it. This was frequently brought up when I began riding motorbikes, albeit a bit later, when I was 18, 19, as some form of natural parental deterrent. Can't blame him, can you? But um, if I recall, Mum also has scars from a motorbike accident, so hey-ho, <laughs> everyone in the family has ridden a motorbike, so they can't dissuade me. And I'm still here, <laughs> well over 10 years later, as a seasoned biker, 
I've only come off once and learned from it. Anyway, yeah, the earliest memories were definitely of that first home. Uh, we lived next to a lovely couple, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Pat, and you know they they would always just have me and my sister around just to give us a wee drink of juice or a wee biscuit or something. It was very much an open door policy back in those days, which was lovely. Both very, very sweet people. The other thing, I suppose, the, the earliest memories will have been of is my first school or preschool as well. Um, kind of before five years old, we, we went to the equivalent of nursery or uh, yeah, preschool or Gaelic preschool was called Crawlachan and hand on heart the <laughs> the Gaelic preschool was a two-roomed cottage on a hillside again with just another little single track dirt road to it and this was the, the local <laughs> kind of care centre I guess um, very basic <laughs> maybe only ten kids were either dropped off for a couple of hours while parents did, you know, parenty things, and then. <laughs> but it was just it was just the humbleness of it all. It was. Uh, it may only be. Twenty twenty five years ago that this all happened, but. That's just the nature of. Rural Scottish Highland living is that, realistically, it was even further back than you might imagine. And it was the same at primary school as well, where things were practiced there that you'd consider fairly old-fashioned even in the 80s, maybe even a bit earlier. You know, full-blown segregation of boys and girls, uh, segregation of language barriers, uh, prejudice, <laughs> um, just very old-fashioned way of doing things, and uh, all the clearer now. Uh, only, only a couple of decades later, a completely different world. But again, that was just the nature of being somewhere so rural and and relatively uh, separated from even mainland Scotland ways of life. Uh, coming down to Glasgow or Edinburgh was an entirely different world and it wasn't even done very often then even by people who weren't as young as us but the primary school was it was a lovely little school people count was maybe around 70 to 80 pupils there were 4 or 5 classes and the teachers really were lovely to be fair had lots of space to play outside, and the school is still there to this day. I give it a little nod if it, every time I drive past. But just the size of it, um, 70 pupils might sound like a decent enough number. Um, but when you factor it in that that was only one of three or four primary schools on the whole of Sky, <laughs> it suddenly gets a bit of perspective.
Um, there really weren't many people on the island back then. So I think the next main memory, I'll keep this one brief, is of, I think it was my sixth birthday. And by that stage, we'd moved to our house-to-be for the f for the next 20 years, the main house that we that we would call Home on Sky, in a little village called Ardvazar, near Armadale, down the south end of Sky, where the pier, sorry, where the ferry came in from Malay, on the mainland, to Armadale. Now on this day, again, this house was positioned overlooking the sea, quite high up, up its own little private track. Uh, at that point it was a council house, we, we rented it as well, so it was also quite basic. Certainly not the house that it ended up being by the time that we left. But beside the house on this day, on this sixth birthday, there were lots of kind of early friends of the same age. All the parents had kids of the same age, so um, beside the house and up behind it as well were woods and fields. But beside the house was an excellent little slope that was a playground in itself. In the winter time, it was a sledging run. In the summer and spring, it was. An archery range, it was a football pitch, uh, it was quite a steep slope, so not great for football. But, but I just have a distinctive memory of this, you know, very humble birthday party, if you want to call it that. And we were uh, just playing some daft wee games. And uh, welly, welly boot throwing was one of those that sticks in my mind. Uh, at least a couple of children were struck by these welly boots. Obviously, <laughs> no, kids don't have aim, do they? But they still somehow manage to <laughs> to strike strike a skull every now and again. Uh, so I remember at least one one of my friends getting leathered with this welly boot. Um, but on that slope as well, f for so many years, myself and my sister used vast gorse bushes as dens in a sense because if you got inside the gorse bushes it wasn't so busy with the thorny flowery parts it was just a lot of kind of hollow space inside which was amazing for making dens so we had little almost like rabbit runs of our own little dirt paths that were the paths and then inside these gorse bushes had uh, they had different rooms there was a kitchen, there was a living room, there were the bedrooms. <laughs> Just the natural architecture of these bushes, but inside them, they were a whole, a whole world of their own. Perfect for kids of, of that age. I do remember both of us trying to get in them many, many years later when we were adults and got far too overgrown, far too big to fit in them now. Uh, the next, the next place I'd like to mention is an area also down the south end of the island called Kinloch. Kinloch Lodge 
is a is a lovely hotel. To this day, one of the ones I would recommend people do visit if they do go to Sky. They do amazing food, and quite fantastic hospitality. And again, like lots of places, the setting is just stunning. Also right on the waterfront, it's quite a grand uh, house in itself. Uh, tartan themes everywhere. But what's special about this place is that this was where, just, just down below this hotel, literally on the water, was where one of my best childhood friends, Jack, lived. Who I still see to this day, actually. Especially lately. <laughs> uh, we, we've lost touch for a long time. For, for a good 10 years or so. 10 to 15 years. Because he left school quite early. But recently, literally in the last three or four months, we've actually connected and, and he's in Glasgow as well just now. So It's a lovely thing to have reconnected with him. Either way, this, this was where he lived. Just the single little white house down below Kinloch Lodge. I believe his parents still live there. So if you're ever passing, you can uh, you can pop your head in the door and tell them I sent you. Down there, though, Kinloch was a playground for me and Jack. Like, everywhere is when you're a child, of course. But Jack was a real, proper, outdoorsy boy. Um, he introduced me to fire. <laughs> he introduced me to bows and arrows and digging trenches and the military and army men and just blowing things up in general. Um, him and his family used to go to France most years and he'd drive all the way and because I believe it was legal <laughs> to bring them back where you could buy them in France firecrackers were at the top of their shop shopping list so every time they got back from France there'd just be this enormous big bag of firecrackers which would tend to last about a year before they go back again so either way me and Jack would be running around the woods building little forts and digging trenches to put little army men in just to end up blowing them up again but there's something extremely satisfactory about doing that I'd like to call it a physics lesson if nothing else but proper wonderful memories of, of that time and of Jack and down by Kenloch Lodge you should definitely go and visit if, if you are there Another thing we loved to do as kids was, like lots of boys, uh, play football. And one of the best places to play football was either at the football pitch at Kinloch, because there was one nearby there that was the official South of Sky football ground. I used to, I played football when I was a lot older for Slate and Strath at this pitch, but at the time it was just a big football pitch, one of the, one of the only full-sized pitches on Sky. So there was Kinloch, but there was also the 
grassy field at the primary school. And they were a bit older at this point, like probably around um, don't know, anywhere from eight years old up to early high school because I still played football with my pals at the primary school. One of my f one of my fondest memories is is just on sunny summer evenings, I would just phone up uh, one of my best pals, Fergus, or vice versa, and he would say he would just say football, <laughs> and I'd just say football, and then boom. At that point, I would hop on my bike and cycle three to four miles along the seafront to the school and take a ball and a, a pump because they usually went flat or usually lost a ball in the woods or something but um, there was just something very special about that it, it, it embodied the ultimate freedom of being young to enjoy <laughs> the innocence I suppose but also old enough to make, the, make your own decisions like that and and because it was rural and the world was a small and friendly place, that was just life and parents didn't think anything of it. Once you were old enough to be responsible, that was you. You know, you were able to go and do whatever you wanted to do, within reason. And it was little journeys like that, although it was only three or four miles. When, when you're young, three or four miles is quite far. And when you're on your own, bicycling along, it was a first taste of independence, I guess. That aside, playing football is always fun, and it just, when I think of the image, it just embodies the summer, the kind of windless nights where it's blue skies and everything is lush, and kind of a golden hue to it. Probably the exact definition of rose-tinted. I firmly believe it was just rose-tinted, it wasn't. I'm, I'm not making it up. <laughs> the other nice thing about doing that was that my mum worked for many years at the local doctor's surgery, which was right beside the primary school, overlooking this grass pitch where we played football. So, depending on the time of day, uh, she would be at work a lot of the time, so I'd just walk, run up the hill, just have a wee chap on the window. She might not have known I was even there, but she'd always be happy to, you know, wave, or <laughs> I'd pop my head in and have a wee chat with her briefly. It was nice. I think the next most prominent memory or story I suppose, revolves around the biggest, I keep saying everywhere is the epicentre of um, fun as a child down where we lived at the, uh, around Armadale and Vaza, but, but Armadale Pier itself was one of the main hotspots for, I don't know, shenanigans <laughs> as a kid. This pier and the beach near it and the, f the woods um, nearby were, were thousands of hours, probably 
were spent. Um, fishing at the pier was certainly something I did very regularly. Me and Dad used to do it a lot. And then, again, on, on a nice night where the tide was coming in and you just had a good feeling that there'd be plenty of fish to catch, off you went. The, the fishing rod was plucked from the shed and down to the end of the pier you went. It, was an, it's a, it still is an amazing pier for fishing, it stretches out quite far into the water, so you're already in relatively deep water by the time you reach the end. But apart from fishing, uh, memories of the ferry coming in and out, just watching it, because sometimes just watching big boats or the world revolving around you is, is what life's all about, isn't it? And, and the ferry coming in and out was a ritualistic thing. Especially because of where our house was positioned, we could see the ferry come in and out multiple times a day, every single day, for the whole time we lived there. So it was a strong symbol of what it was like to be there, I suppose. Um, but if we were fishing and the ferry was coming in, we just time the last cast just to make sure that we weren't getting too close to hitting the ferry or or getting tangled in the line but you knew when the ferry came in it was usually going to scatter the mackerel and you wouldn't have much luck but some people were just fish whisperers I don't know what <laughs> I don't know what they did but they were able to sometimes just walk down to the pier when everyone else had been there for a wee while maybe without much luck they'd they might not even have a rod they just they'd have one of those, I don't know what you'd call them kind of H pattern frames that you just wound the line around they just lower it into the water bob it up and down a couple of times and 30 seconds later they just pull out a full line of six mackerel on their darrows and they'd be gone and it was like black magic don't know how it happened, don't know how they did it but much to the frustration of everyone else there <laughs> but ugh, there were a couple of times that happened and still never ceases to amaze me but the area, the pier and Armadale as a whole Aside from friends working there and parents of friends working there. It was a real, like, um, on foot distance place just to, to wander down if you, if you were at a loose end. And the beach just beside the pier was a definite hot spot for just messing around in the sand. And it was definitely a place where myself and my sister Ellie and our, one, some of our earliest friends, Tashara and Ben Major, who were Sri Lankan, they lived nearby as well, and we'd go down there bare feet, go and swim in the sea, and just lark about as kids do. On a slightly more morbid note though, um, we'd get a lot of just moon jellyfish, in the area, as you do jellyfish season, it's just the seas just full of them. But they'd wash up on the beach and, you know, be be left there for a couple of days and obviously they passed away. But <laughs> I 
doubt we started it, but I certainly remember a few points when we were very young and naive having jellyfish fights because, you know, there's just hundreds of them everywhere. Poor little creatures. I'm going to blame Tishara for that one. She definitely, she definitely threw a few in the first instance. But kids will be kids, eh? <laughs> Sometimes you don't learn until later. Now, as I mentioned before, the infamous Clan Donald Centre deserves a mention too. So aside from Kinlaw and Armdale Pier and the school, the Clan Donald Centre was, I would say, the main play park for all the kids really in the area, but certainly for us because it was only ten minutes walk away. Now the Clan Donald Centre is a castle, a castle and gardens estate owned by the Clan Macdonald. Over the years, I learned a lot more about this place. Initially, it was just that, a, a castle, a ruined castle for that. Gardens, which my dad worked at quite early on, and a little gift shop, which had just sold general gardening tap, but also had, for a wee while, some live animals inside, mainly insects, such as uh, giant millipedes and... Um, some tarantulas, <laughs> and also some small reptiles and snakes and stuff. The first taste of what a zoo might be like. It was extremely exciting as a kid. But this place had everything really. It was like the world's biggest hide-and-seek playground when you were wee. The estate is quite big. Uh, I don't know how many acres it is. I'm going to guess it's the gap, the clock, the Castle and Gardens is maybe maybe a hundred acres, so it's quite large. But within the castle and the the grounds of the kind of up the, the very regal driveway, like immaculately kept gardens and plants, it, it still is extremely beautiful. A prime place for a wedding, because again I worked there a lot during my early, or kind of mid-teens upwards, and worked a lot of weddings there, and to this day, it's genuinely somewhere I can envisage getting married, despite having worked there. Usually, as soon as you work somewhere, you, you never really have many romantic kind of qualities left in your thoughts about the place, but I certainly do with this place. If you're standing in front of the castle, looking out over the sound of slate. It's like the most perfect lawn, like big expansive lawn that just drops away. And then you've just got this big blue abyss of the sea in front of you. It's, uh, I always get a bit, a bit teary every time I go back because I just think, wow, this place is, is up there with the best of them. The last time I was there with my better three quarters, Literally, all I could think about was marrying her. <laughs> anyway, I digress. The the Clandon Centre was amazing as kids because it had a little park in it uh, as well, like a little play park, with some suitably dangerous 
rope balancing attractions as well as swings and things carved out of felled trees. Uh, many an injury was obtained in that play park, but everyone does that, don't they, when they're young? You fall off stuff. You get whiplash, carting yourself around on swings, or uh, who knows. But for many, many years, the Clan Donald was just a real point of reference for myself and my family. I think at some point we've we've all worked there. I think I think my, my sister definitely did. I'm not sure about mum. Maybe maybe not. Either way, I ended up working on the gatehouse as when a 14, 15 year old, putting on a little green t-shirt with Clan Donald written on. And then later on, I waited tables and chefed in the local restaurant. That's where I get my cooking from, at least. Uh, yeah, it was a lovely, lovely place. Um, one thing that I certainly didn't tell you what I'm just about to tell you, okay, <laughs> is that if you go up around the back of the clan, um, there's a little, well, there's quite a steep road um, that goes up around the back. You'll see it from the main road. And up there is a little gate in the back that you can go in. And again, this is just your attitude as a kid. Then if you go in there, you don't have to pay. <laughs> Obviously, these days you'd think, okay, it's all to a good cause and helps keep the place maintained. But <laughs> as a kid and as a local, you just like, nah. We know a secret entrance, let's bring everyone in there. Then you don't have to go through the gatehouse and buy a ticket, but it's not a lot of money, for goodness sake. And there is a, a, a Museum of Sky, a family tracing museum in the Clandonald Centre, which is extremely useful for tracking down some of your family roots and ancestral paths. Can highly recommend. Now, I think the last one for now is going to have to be the family home, of course. Uh, I guess you have to give the family home some credit. Now, yeah, fine. A family home is a family home. It's always going to be a special memory. Uh, because that's what makes it special, isn't it? It's the fact it was the place that you were raised and many years were spent there and lots of phases of your life again revolves around this place i think in the end we were there for i think 24 years there or thereabouts but from the early days of it being a council house which just had some grass surrounding it and, and it was a very basic place as they all were right up to 23 years later where it was almost like a, a botanical paradise with the most beautiful decking out the front of the house a prime spot for stargazing and having fires because we had a good couple of fire pits because having fires 
and stargazing and toasting marshmallows and so on was just a part of life. You know, does it a discredit to talk about it as a special thing because it was just so commonly done? You don't even think about it. But from yeah, from the early days, it didn't take long before both mum and dad got their hands dirty, as they always like to do, and started to slowly but steadily transform this kind of bare bones landscape of a house and garden, wasn't even a garden, through to a complete um, oasis, fundamentally. It didn't take long before we or they, at least, I say, we. I can't take too much credit for it. <laughs> when you're a young kid, you don't have too much interest in it, do you? But uh, they planted dozens of trees and bushes and shrubs and flowers and made rock beds and <laughs> raised flower beds and created, like, dug up a driveway, made a vegetable patch down the bottom fenced in, so didn't stop the rabbits getting in there and nibbling away on everything. But that vegetable patch was an incredible thing for a wee while. It was a... yeah. Everything was grown in there. And during, during kind of the summer and early autumn, where everything was ripe and prime for picking, it was, it was a feast for the eyes. <laughs> so much colour, flower and you know, there'd be a couple of varieties of kale and lettuces and carrots and onions, but the, but the most amazing bits were the fruit bushes, like gooseberries and red currants. And up the back, the ever-reliable raspberries and uh, sweet peas, mange too, whatever you want to call them. They were always very reliable and very tasty. And just, just... It was its own little paradise in there too. A little wooden gate and the fence into this vegetable patch was probably about six or seven feet high. Just because it, it made a useful wall, effectively, on which to grow things against. So it was properly like entering a different world when you went into this patch. Oh, it was amazing. Over the years, it did get a bit overgrown. Uh, just as life went that way, but but it was it was an amazing place. I think the main reason it did was maybe in t late kind of mid two thousands, late two thousands. In its place came a polytunnel because it became quite clear that when it worked, it worked planting and growing outside, but such as the nature of the weather. Rain in winter could be very harsh. So, we got a very large polytunnel and put it nearby to the, veg to the vegetable patch, and that became the vegetable patch. That mean meant that we'd had relatively temperate weather to grow all sorts of things much more reliably. In that polytunnel, at some points or another, we had chickens in there, and quail, although the quail weren't very happy. <laughs> they were not a happy bunch of birds, and I think one day 
the door got left open and then they, they ran away. So less said about them the better. But ever since we were young, maybe four or five, we had wildlife. We had chickens and ducks and for yeah, the whole time we were on Sky we did rear poultry. So it was the most bizarre thing moving away from Sky in early adulthood and having to buy eggs because that was the very first time I'd ever really had to buy eggs because we never needed to <laughs> for the majority of my life until that point and it just felt very wrong for a long while we had many batches of hens ranging from just standard little brown ones the, the variety the variety escapes me. We had brown ones, we had black ones. <laughs> we had lots of cockerels at one point or another. We had a couple of families of bantam hens as well. They were funny. They resembled pigeons more than chickens, to be honest. And their eggs were, like, uselessly small. But they meant well, and they were, <laughs> they were very sweet wee things. Then there was the ducks. We did have ducks for a wee while. But yeah, they're funny. Yeah, of course they need water, but they weren't quite as sociable. Uh, the chickens were a good laugh because, you know, they were relatively friendly and you could pick them up and you know, mess about with them and just play with them. But ducks were their own thing. They were hilarious because they would, especially as ducklings, when they hadn't quite found their feet yet, they'd end up rolling about, rolling down the hill without any real way of stopping. <laughs> they were very sweet, and I did kind of miss having ducks. Yeah, for a very long time we had hens. We did have cats as well, and the cats and the hens got on quite well. There, were ne there was never any conflict with them, despite some people's concerns, but no, they were all one big happy family. But the main thing that people remember if they ever did get the chance to visit that house is the view. There's lots of good views in the world. I've seen lots of better views than the view from the house, but when you're talking about rough you know, majority majority of views you might have from a home, aside from being you know, on the sixth or seventh story of a, bo a block of flats overlooking the land, like the, the horizon. This view really was up there because we were about, I'd say maybe a hundred, uh, maybe 150 to 200 feet above sea level. Maybe not, maybe 150 feet above sea level. And about half a mile from the sea itself which was perfect just for having a good vantage point uh, over the little small islands on the Sound of Slate, the mountains across on the mainland, because there was a proper mountain range to look at, kind of like mini Alps. But some of the nicest things, aside from watching the ferry come in and out, and <laughs> timing the ferry run, if, if you needed to get the ferry for whatever reason, 
you know, other people would be arriving half an hour in advance and <laughs> queuing up because, you know, why wouldn't you? If, unless you live there, but the beauty of it was if we were going to get the ferry, we could watch the ferry come in nearly all the way before we'd think, okay, we need to go now because the ferry's there. You know, you might, you could just hover for a couple of minutes more just until you needed to, you really needed to go. But from the house, it was a it was an amazing place to watch porpoise and dolphins from. Sometimes you could see and whales as well. Sometimes you could, on a very very calm day, very clearly see them, a, a mile or two away, just little tiny little black humps of dorsal fins. Um, that was quite amazing. More often than not. You didn't need binoculars or a telescope to see it clearly, but, you know, they, they were only over there, they're not that far away, but the waves can look quite dolphin-esque uh, on, on the less, less than calm days, but, yeah, it was a real, a real haven for wildlife around there. Anyway, that's, for now at least, just a little selection of things which have just come to mind because it's it's impossible to pack in nearly 20 years of life into a few anecdotes <laughs> but uh, yeah it's been a nice informal little casual chat but if you'd like to hear more because there are plenty more that's all mostly in the first 10 years of being there there's another another 10 years to follow if you did want to hear more, just let me know. I'm always open. Anyway, just let your mind wander and imagine what it'd be like to live on sky yourself. Or somewhere really rural. I hope those have given you a little taste about what life is like, at least in the southern end of sky, because that's what I've spoken about mostly, if not entirely. <laughs> there is a whole other half of the island full of incredible geography and geology to talk about because this is the nature of it too the sky seemed like a big place to me when I, even when I was very young because it's 50 miles long and 30 miles wide and life was in mostly the southern end of the island but then when I turned high school age I was up north at high school, which almost completely redefined what even I thought the island was, but perhaps that's a story for another night. Sleep well, and sweet dreams for now. <laughs>